Is Build to Rent a new approach to our housing crisis? It's certainly new to Australia anyway, but not elsewhere. That's what we'll examine now. Could it play a major role in alleviating the shortage of shelter here due to tax changes announced in the recent budget, definitely aimed at overseas investors? Now, just to give you um, some context, in February, Built to Rent had only 11 operating projects, as far as we understand. Only two are fully built, and they're from local capital, but there are 72 in the pipeline. Overseas, these plans are much more common. And a bit of explanation, maybe, uh, would help too. Build to Rent is a model where property developers build housing, usually apartment blocks, that are for rent only and they're owned by institutional investors like super funds or trusts. The plan here is that these uh, big investors must offer at least 50 dwellings, that they must be held, the main owner, as single ownership for 10 years before they can be sold on, and that they must offer around three-year leases at least to people. Now, the budget's key measures change tax rates, bringing build-to-rent into the same category of withholding tax, 15%, as other property asset classes like commercial, logistics or student accommodation. There's still some debate here in Australia about it, so let's look closer and ask Dr Michael Fotheringham, Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, AHURI, and Dan McLennan, founder and co-CEO of Local. It's a Melbourne-based development company that focuses on build-to-rent projects. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Just an overview question to start. Uh, Will the budget decisions make a difference? Will they bring in new players? Your thoughts, Michael? Oh, I, I think they will help to encourage investment in build to rent. And as you say, it is a, a fledgling offering in this country at the moment. And, and the sorts of provision we see in across North America and, and Europe would be a, a, a really promising development in Australia. So, so I think there's some encouraging signs here. And Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree. I've, I've certainly in our discussion with uh, investors, whilst there's a number of overseas groups that have commenced to invest in the sector in Australia, uh, a number of discussions we've had, it's been flagged as a barrier um, for overseas investors to invest in build to rent when they're taxed effectively twice as much for investing in retail or student accommodation. So certainly we see it as a really positive initiative. Yes, some have sort of suggested, you know, that it's really momentous. I think I read one one adjective uh, about uh, this. Why was it taxed so much more heavily, Michael? Maybe we should ask that. Well, I think part of that is to do with um, concerns around foreign investment in Australian property. I think, you know, in the last decade or so, there's been some, I guess, nervous rhetoric around foreign investment generally um, and some, some tight rules around foreign investment in Australian property. So it's it's probably reflective of that concern. So would you say then that um, Australia would become a more competitive destination. Like I read that it, this whole new class took about 11, 9 to 11 years to ramp up in the UK, um, which was later than the American version and the European version. Is that, do you think something like that might happen here? 
Well, yes, I mean, I think we're probably four or five years into that journey, perhaps a little more here, but but it has been slower going. And part of that is to do with the nature of our property ownership in Australia, where we have a far more distributed ownership. You know, most rental accommodation is owned by small-scale investors who own one or two properties and quite small numbers of investors who own anything more than that. So we don't have that, I guess, cultural um, understanding and expectation of institutional investment that um, that other parts of the developed world have that as much more normal as within the rental system. And Dan, tell us about your business, Local, whether you are a classic, because you're quite new, whether you're a classic type of entrant into this area. Yeah, you make a good point in terms of defining um, what is typical or what is usual for a very nascent um, uh, sector. Um, So our business is where um, an Australian uh, built-to-rent business um, founded in Melbourne, um, business started two years ago. We currently have um, 900 apartments uh, under construction in two projects in Melbourne, but our vision and and our goal is certainly to be Australia-wide. The space for our model where we're potentially a little bit different for some of the other entrants in the marketplace at the moment is I think some of the early adopters really focused around sort of really premium uh, rental product, hotel-inspired services and the like. And whilst we don't deny that there is a market for that, um, we created the business with a real vision to be more inclusive and particularly to provide a product that would be more attainable um, and service sort of the middle market as opposed to the premium end. And coupled with that, really conscious of having a component of housing within our developments that was um, targeting social, affordable and also disability accommodation. So are you for profit or not for profit? No, no, we're we're for profit, but I think what we would categorise ourselves as being a very ESG-focused business and I think most for-profit institutional investors now have an increasing focus on the social impact um, of their activities and we're certainly... Uh, aligned to that in sort of how we're running our business. Now, you're backed by Macquarie Asset Management's Beds and Sheds Fund, I think it's called, officially the Asia-Pacific Real Estate Partnership, which raised $1.1 billion from institutional investors this year to invest in logistics and rental housing. Now, look, I honestly think that listeners will be really surprised to hear this. Um, well, I think, that, well, firstly, from um, from our perspective, we um, we found you know, Macquarie as a, as a partner for our business to be, um, you know, tremendous in terms of their global reach and their experience of invested in, in residential real estate all around the world. Um, and so in that regard, um, you know, they're, they've really looked at the sector as many investors have and seen uh, a space whereby it's, it's a pretty you know, dysfunctional product right now if you're a renter um, and there's a lot of opportunity to improve that um, with build to rent in terms of having certainty of tenure and common ownership of an entire building. So if you think about it, if you're a tenant right now, it's a pretty rough gig in terms of the certainty of your tenure. Indeed. Indeed. And I mean, is there yield? There's, there's yield in this, is there? This is, is this where I go back? Is this for profit? Well, it's oh, absolutely. Well, there's yield in property investment in all in all in all categories. Um, it's not a high yield, so this sort of uh, as an investment asset is very much a core um, product that's you know stable returns. You know, really looking at it from the perspective of you've got a building with um, you know potentially 400 different tenants, 
um, very low volatility. It's not like an office building or a a um, industrial uh, property that could be completely vacant with no income. Oh, you know, I the, see. The, the returns are quite stable. So it's almost capital guaranteed. Well, not yeah, quite, it's, but... it's certainly oh, nothing <laughs> capital guaranteed. But I would certainly say it's 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 right down on the on the the low end of the risk spectrum for investment, and that's its real attraction. Very interesting, and yet. Um, the there's been real, uh, what shall I say, scepticism, I think, about this, Michael, uh, here in Australia, among the people who like to think about this as to whether this really would yield the the hope that uh, was was suggested, partly because it was going, it, it tended to go to that higher end, that provision of, of services to people who could pay. Well, I think that's right. I think, I think Dan's example is, is a brilliant example of, of really shifting away from the problem that Build to Rent has has had in, in its fairly early stages in this country, in that it has tended to to focus on a premium product. It's it's more at the sort of service department end, for the most part. So seeing these examples where we're moving beyond that, just just offering a premium high cost service, to to something that that approaches most of the market and in fact addresses the social and affordable shortage we have is a real positive and and so you know the tax rulings um, through the budget and the national cabinet announcements over the last couple of weeks are very encouraging that, that we can actually finally see some movement in this space. Uh, do you think that it could be a, a game changer? There are discussions, you know, arguments that once it moves, it moves fast as opposed to it doesn't quite have the long lead time that other um, assets do and that it could really ramp up much faster than we think. Now, again, there's debate about precisely this. What are your thoughts? Well, that's absolutely possible. I mean, one of the benefits of this model is when you have an institutional investor, uh, the developer doesn't need to spend time shopping around trying to sort of sell off the plan and and, and get a, a large number of investors on board, you know, to commence construction. So, you know, there is a there's a speed benefit there and a certainty benefit there. So, yes, this could absolutely start to move more quickly. And large-scale investors are often interested in, move, in, in investing in more than one site. So, really, at, at genuine scale, there's opportunity there. I mean, we have supply chain constraints. It's not it's not, um, it's not a silver bullet, but it's certainly a helpful step. Uh, just a, a clarification. I heard a wonderful story the other day about a woman in Sydney, just a sort of a regular woman who had a bit of wealth, and she decided, so upset by what she was reading about um, rental stress, that she bought, she decided to buy a building in the western suburbs of Sydney and rent it out, particularly to single mothers, for a period of time so they could sort of raise their children and in, in, a, in a really stable way. Um, and that was going to be her contribution, you know, to getting a certain amount back, but not necessarily a big yield. Now, this, mm. these changes in the budget, they're really not designed for people like her, are they? They're designed for big people, or am I wrong? Uh, that's a fantastic story. And, and there are there are actually tax mechanisms to help those sorts of approaches. And, and, and really, they should be encouraged. It's fantastic to see. And we're seeing more and more um, individual households looking for ways to 
to provide a socially responsible solution and, and to do good things in the in the rental market. Um, but no, this this ruling is not about that that scale of investment. This is actually about much sca- larger scale investment. And, and you know, I see that Uhuri published a research. Uh, last year called Private Sector Involvement in Social and Affordable Housing. And one of the key things it says is that there's a growing appetite in the private sector for partnerships. I mean, this is, build to rent is on your own, but partnerships with government and not-for-profits in developing social and affordable housing. What is driving this growing appetite and what's in it for developers? I mean, we're talking about building developers here. Well, I think Dan put it very nicely, talking about you know the the socially responsible need here. It's not just you know for-profit companies aren't just about financial profit. There's a there's a bigger dimension here. But it is in fact a profitable enterprise to be involved in, and and really most of the social housing in Australia, um, in, in built in the last decade, has been built through partnerships between developers, government, and and often um, the not-for-profit sector or the community sector. Um, who then go on to manage those properties. So, you know, this 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 partnership approach is, has been building for quite some time um, and is really where all the momentum's at in terms of improving our supply of social and affordable housing. And Dan, are you finding with your local, um, uh, which I think includes a minimum of 10% affordable or social uh, and disability accessible housing in every development, um, do you rely on government inputs, by the way? I mean, what would be the most sustainable way to ensure ongoing access to the affordable housing in your, in your upcoming developments? It's a great question. So, so we don't rely on government um, support for, for that component of our housing, but we would love to do more. So that's where government support could come in through, whether it's through potentially things like the Housing Australia Future Fund, which could create an income stream that could then, um, you know, we could work in partnership with not-for-profit groups to provide greater amounts of affordable housing within our developments. But there's... There's a broader range of opportunities around planning, particularly, and looking critically at how we do planning in Australia versus how planning is done around the world. So in London, um, you have a mandatory 30% requirement for affordable housing uh, in every development. It's just made to work. Now, if we have those sorts of rules in Australia, and the arts also is obviously in how we introduce them, but it creates a level playing field. So we don't. We've got certainly from locals' perspective. You know, we we don't mind. We actually really want uh, affordable housing in our projects. If we have things like inclusionary zoning, those sorts of mechanisms, government support in the form of income um, top ups to help bridge the gap between a market return and affordable return, then I think that's what's the real game changer for delivering affordable housing. All right. I think the MIT changes that we're talking about now, what that's really more doing is dealing with the fact that we need as a nation to create okay. 65,000 rental properties a year. I know. It's, it's such a, de- a devastating number. Look, thank you both very much indeed, gentlemen. Dr Michael Fotheringham and Dan McLennan, thank you. And we're back after eight. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.